Hey, we've been gone for a few weeks, and it's great to be back with you. This morning, I don't advise moving anyone to Phoenix in the summer, though. You know, we thought it was hot here. It was, and it was hotter there. Juan and Jess are breaking into their new life there, and their air conditioner shot craps immediately. So they were in a hotel for three of their first four or five days in Phoenix, I think, trying to get caught up. Anyway, we got to get to Southern Cal, too, and see our other girls and see our first granddaughter. Looks, I'm not sure, I think she looks like her dad. Good-looking little gal, anyway. How, how could she not be, right? Exactly, Stan. <laughs> hey, let, let me pray again for just a second. Lord, when we come before you, we just acknowledge our need that uh, you are not only the God who provides, Lord, but you're the one who knows each of us intimately, inside and out. You know what we bring with us this morning. You know our needs. And Lord, while we intend to honor you on one hand, we simply realize that we come as those who need you more than you need anything we can bring to give you thanks and praise. And so we ask, Lord, on one hand, that the offering we give you in teaching, in worship, in declarations would be pleasing to you. They'd be heartfelt, genuine. And Lord, on the flip side, at the same time, we ask that you'd accomplish your good work in us. We need you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, indulge me for a minute as I uh, revert to poetry uh, to open up this morning. This is a poem called The Sin of Omission. It's by Margaret Sangster. Margaret lived a generation ago, 100 years or so ago, was a, a magazine editor. <clears throat> she says this, It isn't the thing you do, dear. It's the thing you leave undone that gives you a bit of heartache at setting of the sun. The tender word forgotten, the letter you did not write, the flowers you did not send, dear, are your haunting ghosts at night. The stone you might have lifted out of a brother's way, the bit of heartsome counsel you were hurried too much to say, the loving touch of the hand, dear, the gentle winning tone which you had no time nor thought for with troubles enough of your own. Those little acts of kindness so easily out of mind, those chances to be angels which we poor mortals find, they come in night and silence, each sad reproachful wraith when hope is faint and flagging and a chill has fallen on faith. For life is all too short, dear, and sorrow is all too great to suffer our slow compassion that tarries until too late. And it isn't the thing you do, dear, it's the thing you leave undone which gives you a bit of heartache at the setting of the sun. The passage we're in this morning, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is writing in part to the Corinthians to try and get them to avoid future heartache. Things left undone. And this passage we'll be in this morning is a lengthy one, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I normally don't tackle this much text at a time. It's a lengthy passage, and it's about, among other things, it's about completing a good work that the Corinthian church had talked about, made plans for, but they hadn't finished it. And so Paul writes, he includes in this second letter to the Corinthians, he includes this enjoinder on them. It was good that you started a thing, 
this blessing to some other Christians. But you've got to finish it. Paul doesn't want them to wake up at night in the future and regret what they did not do with the time they had. Specifically, Paul wants the Corinthian church to give, to give financially to the saints in Jerusalem, to the church in Jerusalem. Charles Spurgeon said, feel for others in your pocket. And that's what Paul wants them to do. Feel for those believers in Jerusalem in your pocket where it counts, something that will be transformational in their life because it's real. It's not just talk. It's not thinking about it. It's not good intentions. It's doing it. Now, if you remember, just minor background, Paul's on his third missionary journey. And during this time, the saints in Jerusalem are in great need. No one's quite sure for sure what the deal was, but they think it was due to a famine in the late 40s A.D. And so the folks there are in dire straits. And so Paul had told, if you remember back in Galatians 2, he said when he'd gone to Jerusalem originally, he'd met with the apostles and they gave him the right, the right hand of fellowship. He's going to the Gentiles to present Christ. They said, that's great. And we also ask that you'd remember the poor or the needy. And that's what he's doing here. There's still that same kind of need in Jerusalem. And so Paul is collecting these finances that will be taken to the saints there in Jerusalem. Now, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this is the longest continuous passage on giving in the New Testament. If you go into the law, there's other sustained areas because so much of the offerings are seen as giving. But in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, longest single passage on giving. Having said that, this passage does not cover all the bases on giving. It certainly by no means covers everything that God has to say about giving, particularly because this, this was a very specific occasion. There was a very specific need. And so all of these chapters are written in the context of needs within the Christian church in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of things this passage does not cover related to giving. This does not talk about missionary support. It doesn't talk about supporting pastors or staff in local churches. It does not talk about finances related to church buildings or other ministries. It's a very narrow focus. So as we're going through that, the benefit primarily is a view of giving related to helping other people, specifically other Christians. This is not to say Christians aren't called to help those who are not in the family of faith or not yet, but this occasion was a collection to help other Christians. So it's a fairly narrow focus, even though it occupies two chapters. Now, on your handout, I made this a big handout. It's two sides, full one sheet, okay? You know, if you were in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter, you'd be sitting someplace probably not air-conditioned, probably not on these nice, comfortable metal chairs, maybe something like them, stone, good comparison. Uh, <clears throat> but you'd listen to one of the leaders read 13 chapters. And I just want you to know, rest assured, I'm not going to read 13 chapters this morning. But I am going to read two full chapters. This is several minutes of reading. It's much more than I'm used to doing, certainly more than you're used to hearing. But I want the context for the whole thing. We're going to look at these two chapters this week on why, why, that's what we're after today. Lord or Paul, why should we practice the kind of giving you're describing here? Why? Next week, in the same context, in the same two chapters, we'll look at how do we do that. So today it's why, next week, excuse me, two weeks from now, I keep trying to take Kent Vincent Sunday, sorry Kent, two weeks from now, 
It will be on how, Lord willing, anyway. So, two chapters. I didn't print this out. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. Put your hearing caps on or whatever this looks like for you. Pay attention, we'll jump in. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. By the way, as almost I always do, I'll make a few comments for clarity along the way. Paul continues his letter, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. These be the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Their affliction is persecution. The new churches there were persecuted. And then also, we won't treat this, but note the contrast here. On one hand, there's a great ordeal of affliction. In spite of that, there's abundance of joy. That's what Christians should have. There's also, on one hand, deep poverty. But in spite of that, there is a wealth of liberality in giving. So our ability or our situation does not determine our outlook on life or the way we respond to others' needs. Verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Those would be the Christians in Jerusalem. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. To abound meant to rise above some kind of set limit, some kind of limitation, to rise above a limitation. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that, just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality." At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, and now Paul quotes from Exodus 16, 18, if you remember the scene, this is when God graciously rains down manna every morning for the Jews to eat. And the point there was everyone's needs were equally met. So Paul quotes saying, He who gathered much did not have too much, no excess. He who gathered little had no lack. They all had what they needed. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he had not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. By the way, Titus is sort of the emissary between Paul and the Corinthian church. 
He helped them start this plan to give to the collection for the saints at Jerusalem. And he's the guy that's carried this letter back to them as well for Paul. Paul's still in Macedonia. We have sent along with him, with Titus, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. We don't know who this brother is, this famous brother. Uh, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother. We don't know who this brother is either whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Chapter 9. How are we doing? Eyes open? Eyes open. Okay. For it is superfluous, it's unnecessary, Paul says, for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise... If any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of every good deed." As it is written, now Paul's quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. And by the way, this psalm is about what the life of the righteous man, the righteous Jew in God's economy looked like. And this is one of the things that was typical of him. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, he practiced grace giving. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his, his indescribable gift. Two chapters. Well done. Hey, first point. I hope you have a study sheet 
there are, obviously, with this much reading and six points that we're going to cover, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any of them. So get your pens out and, and keep up as much as you'd like to. The first point Paul makes is that God's grace is our model for giving. That our grace giving is fashioned after God's own display of grace giving. I don't know if you noticed as we read through, the word grace, the Greek charis, is used ten times in these two chapters. That's why we talk about grace giving. That's the key term in these two chapters. It's grace. And Paul's calling the church to emulate God's grace giving to us as they give to others. Paul saw this work, this grace giving, to be first and last a reflection of the kind of grace God had already poured out on those Christians, but also the kind of gracious work God intended for them to be a part of, that this was the norm. This giving wasn't sort of above and beyond. This was to be typical of them because of God's grace. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians, that letter, you know that the Corinthians highly valued what Paul called their grace gifts. We don't use that term today. We don't say grace gifts. We say charismatic gifts. But that only means grace gifts. Uh, the, The terminology, its use has changed a little bit. But the Greek, charismatic, just means it's a grace gift. So in 1 Corinthians, when Paul's talking about the fact that the church had all these grace gifts these special abilities by the Holy Spirit to pray in languages they hadn't learned, to prophesy, to speak God's word, to perform miracles, gifts of faith. He goes through a litany of lists there. Paul said, you guys really desire these grace gifts, these charismatic gifts. They were impressive. And the Corinthians were a rather shallow, carnal group, quite a bit like the church in the West today, and they wanted to look impressive. And Paul says, listen, guys, Take that same kind of desire you have for those grace gifts and bring that to bear on the grace of giving, on giving grace gifts to others. Take that same excitement and enthusiasm you have for the gifts of the Spirit and bring that over so that you're enthusiastic about grace giving to others. If you look at chapter 8, verse 7, he says, As you abound in everything, and he mentions a short list of gifts, he says that you abound in this gracious work also. And then again at 8 verse 9, this is sort of where he lowers the hammer. Consider this if one point maybe this would be the point to take home. This is the hammer. 8 verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul's enjoining on them grace giving. And he says, by the way, guys, remember the incarnation when you think about God's call on you to practice grace giving. Remember the incarnation. Because in the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past to eternity future, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and every star and every planet and every nebula, he leaves it all behind to take on our humanity to travel the dusty roads of Palestine, to die on a cross for your sins and mine so that we could be redeemed, become his co-heirs, 
and enjoy his eternal wealth as we rule and reign with him forever. That's no small gift, this grace gift. So Paul says, guys, when you're thinking about grace gifts to others, remember from whence you came. Jesus Christ practiced the ultimate grace giving when he left heaven, came to earth in the incarnation, took on our sins so that we could become his co-heirs and then share with him as the future king of all kings, lord of all lords, share with him his wealth owns everything forever with us forever. That's all Jesus did for us. And that's the marker. So Paul says, as you consider the grace gift, consider Jesus and his grace gift to you. He left everything so that you could have everything. You and I who had nothing would gain everything. And take that another step. Paul doesn't mention this here, but if you think of John 3.16, best known verse in John's gospel, maybe in the New Testament, God loved the world so he gave his only begotten son. You know, there's only one thing God the Father ultimately cared about, most about, right? And that's his son. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And so when God loved us, he gave us everything he cared about. He, if you will, he emptied the vaults of heaven because his Son was all he cared about, and he gave his Son to us. And so that's the model we have for our grace giving. That's what Paul says. If we are tempted to feel small and mean in our giving, um, you know, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. God, these are my needs. God, this is what I want. Lord, you haven't heard me on this. God, you haven't answered this prayer. Paul says, hey, remember from whence you came. Jesus left everything the riches of heaven, to come down for your sake, the ultimate grace gift. And that then is our model. So this should deliver us from small-minded giving and living. It's not all about us. Jesus made it all about us in redemption, and now we're free, like him, to think of others. And out of that kind of grace we've received to practice grace giving towards the needs of others. That's kind of the hammer when the hammer hits. Because Paul says, remember what Jesus did for you. How can you do less for others? If Jesus gave us everything he had, the Father gave the Son, how can we not practice grace giving? How can we reject the kind of model, the kind of example they've set for us and do less ourselves just out of an attitude of thanksgiving? This will come up later. If we realize what God's done for us, it impels us to gracious giving towards the needs of others. So, we who have received the riches of grace giving, Paul says, hey, you should be a vessel for others to receive the same thing. So first, why should we practice grace giving? Because God calls us to give to others graciously because he's first given graciously to us. The second issue Paul brings up, completing the grace gift they had previously spoken of. Paul talks about this mostly there in chapter 9, but, you know, this is the way it went. So the Corinthians say, hey, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. We're going to take up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Absolutely. So Paul goes, having heard that, to the Macedonian churches, and he brags on the Corinthians. Hey, our brothers and sisters in Corinth, this is what they're going to do. They're going to take up a, a big gift. They're really going to shell it out for the Christians in Jerusalem. 
And in part, in response to that, the Christians in the, in the um, Macedonian churches, they're like the widow at the temple. They're giving above and beyond their ability to give, in part because of the encouragement of their brothers in Corinth. The trouble is, Paul says, you guys talked about it. You made plans for it, but you haven't done it. And so that's why I'm sending these guys ahead because if any of the Macedonians came who were so inspired by your example of giving, what you said you'd give, and they see that you haven't done anything, they would be embarrassed, you would be embarrassed, I would be embarrassed. Let's get past embarrassment. Complete the good work you talked about. Don't let it end with talk. You've got to complete the good work. Paul says finish what you've started just like the poem we open with don't lay your head down at night because there's something you purposed before God to do but said gosh I'm not going to quite get to that today or tomorrow or the next day if you look at 8 verse 6 he says uh, Titus who was part of that initial plan he had previously made a beginning he would also complete in you this gracious work as well Titus is coming back to help you finish the job 8, 10, and 11, Paul says they're finished doing it. There was a readiness, there was desire, he says, but there should also be a completion. Paul's saying, guys, you can't sit on your hands. You can't rest on your laurels. Your good intentions are not enough to affect anything. They're not enough. You've made plans, that's good. You've got to finish it. Talking about giving someone else help, meeting their needs, that's, that's good. Praying about it, that's better. And then doing it, that's best. The first two, they don't carry much weight if the third one doesn't happen, following through. So, second point, why practice grace giving? Because it brings to completion the grace works God inspires in us. God's in the inspiration for those gifts in the first place. It completes the good works God's prepared for us to walk in. The third point, Paul says he wants this collection to occur because it has something to do with what he says is equality. He says by way of equality. If you look in uh, 8, 13, and 14, this isn't for the ease of others and your affliction. It's by way of equality. Uh, Their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. We'll talk a little bit about what this means and what it doesn't mean. First, there's two Greek terms Paul uses here four times. Um, The first one means likeness in condition or proportion, equity and fairness. Paul says so that there might be fairness. So he says um, he commends grace giving as a way that God brings about equity in meeting his children's needs. So Paul says when you have an abundance now, part of that abundance is meant by God to meet the needs of others, in this case, the Christians in Jerusalem. But he said also, in your season of need, the abundance of others in the church is meant in part to meet your needs as well. So there's this kind of equity in meeting needs. Now, you can't carry this too far. When we say this collection has to do with equality, let me mention a few things this is not meant. This is not communism. Um, you'll hear some Christians uh, tout communism. Biblically, from the New Testament, specifically in Acts 5, um, that just is not present, though. You'll see just as here in Acts 5, 
leaders enjoined Christians to give what they themselves owned. The church didn't claim anything. They didn't say, your property is ours. It wasn't like a government coming in and seizing your assets and saying, now we're going to make everyone and everything equal. This was not communism. Paul says, I'm not even commanding you. I'm exhorting you. I'm encouraging you. But it's your stuff, and you're responsible for its disposition. So this is not communism. It's also not advocating that everyone have the same standard of living. You guys probably know this would be an impossibility for political reasons, for historic reasons. There's all kinds of reasons. But this isn't by way of equality in, this, in the large sense of a standard of living. Paul writes letters to slaves and slave owners. He writes to the rich and to the poor. And he's not trying to say that everyone is going to live at the same standard of living. Again, this goes back to the issue of needs. And last, he's certainly not saying this is an end to poverty, either generally through the church giving, grace graciously, nor is he even saying within the church there will never be poverty. The saints in Jerusalem, at this point, they were experiencing a kind of poverty. They had needs that were at that point unmet. Jesus said in Matthew 26, the poor will always be with you. The church and grace giving is never going to eradicate all poverty. It's not going to happen. You know, on one hand, the United States effort in the past, what was called the war on poverty, might have been noble, but it was entirely misguided. We will always have poverty on the earth. And in the, in the government's war on poverty, where they seized people's assets through taxes, they've accomplished some goods, no doubt, but it's been a terrible concept, terrible toll on the individuals they meant to bless, as well as on the economy everyone's involved with, on the other hand. You know, one of the reasons people often talk about the church not doing enough, the government has taken away the role of the church through much of this country. The government was never ordained by God to provide for widows and orphans. The church was. But the government has usurped that role. I think it's entirely unbiblical. I don't think it's even within the Constitution of the United States. But that's where we are today. It was well-intentioned, good intentions, and really lousy follow-through. So Paul's, he's commending grace, giving to meet needs. This isn't going to end all poverty. It's not going to give everyone the same standard of living. It's not communism. The, the church is not coming in and seizing the Corinthian assets. It's not a lot of things. It is about meeting needs. So the equality, the kind of equality God is after here is the equality that comes about because Christian brothers and sisters, those in Christ, care enough about each other to meet each other's needs. That's what it's about by way of equality. So why practice grace giving? Because God means for his children to share with each other such that as much as possible there's equality in our needs being met meeting our needs. The fourth one, to unite the members of Jesus' church. Many commentators think this this fourth uh, point that we're covering is the key reason Paul wanted this collection to occur. Remember, when this was written, this is still in the early days of the church. The church is originally a group of Jews in Palestine. That's all it is. And the Jewish Christians in the new church have trouble coming to grips with how do we relate to Gentiles. And Gentiles have a tough time trying to figure out 
Why should I care about that little group of Jews in Palestine? There was a real uneasiness in the early church as these different ethnic political groups with great historical differences tried to figure out how do we relate to each other. One of the things that happened was there was a unity or there was a bond forged because of this grace gift from Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians. The Gentile churches, because of this exhortation by Paul and they heard about the Corinthian church's willingness, they're now bonded to the Christians in Jerusalem. They're Jewish brothers in a way they had not been before. They've responded to a need. And also, listen, in 9.14, Paul says those Jewish Christians are now going to be bonded to the Gentile Christians in a way they were not before. He says, while they, Jewish Christians, by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. So this grace giving between the Gentiles and the Jews, it brought this solidarity between two groups who otherwise weren't quite sure what to make of each other. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one church. This gave some feet, some reality to that truth. We're all one body in Christ. Why practice grace giving? Because it unites us in tangible ways with our brothers and sisters in Christ across ethnic, political, economic, and social barriers. Giving to others gets past all of that and unites us with those who are truly united to us in Christ. Fifth, Paul says this proves your faith. Grace giving proves our union with Christ in Christ-like giving. Paul uses a couple different terms here also to talk about this, but he's saying essentially, your grace giving demonstrates the reality that the one who left his wealth to come to the earth to end wealth others is truly alive in you. Your grace giving validates your claim to be a Christ follower. It gives proof. The thought here is that you examine a thing and you test it for genuineness or you demonstrate or you manifest the reality of a thing. So in 8.8, Paul says, proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. This will prove the sincerity of your love. If you look at 8.22, it's used a little differently there, but Paul says, our brother whom we have often tested, we've demonstrated his godliness, his godly character, his sincerity. At 9.13, Paul says, because of the proof given by this ministry in last 8.24, Paul says, show them the proof of your love. Guys, you know, we, we live in a day, it's easy to say things, it's another to do them. Back to the opening poem. You know, we don't want to lay our head down at night thinking lovely thoughts, but never following through on any of them. And it's easy for us, is it not, Do we not say to someone else, I'll pray for you, and then we don't pray? Do we not say to somebody else, hey, I want to get together with you, and we don't do it? You know, we think we're going to be an encouragement. We say lovely words. We think lovely thoughts, but we don't do them. What are they worth? This is the same mentality James and John bring in James 2 when James says, you guys, if you say you have faith, but there's no works that prove them, what good is it? 
If your brother or sister comes to you and they have need and you say, be warm and be filled, what use is it? James is a bottom line kind of a guy. Paul says here, you prove, you demonstrate the reality of Christ being in you through your grace giving, through meeting the needs of others. And 1 John, I think it's chapter 3, this is one I used to quote to my girls all the time. Don't love in word and tongue. Doesn't mean don't tell someone you love them. But love in deed and truth. If you say it, and that's all you do, doesn't amount to much. You've got to do it. You've got to fulfill it. That's the thought here. So if we call ourselves Christians, but there's no proof, there's no demonstration of Christ's kind of grace in our lives because we're grace giving to the needs of others, Paul says, what use is it? So why practice grace giving? Because the reality of our union with Christ is demonstrated as we demonstrate Christ's kind of sacrificial giving. Last, we're doing great on time. Man, I should slow down. Last, to point six, when we practice grace giving, God is honored. God is honored. If you look at 8.19, Paul there says, In this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. God himself is honored in this collection from his children, some of his children, to others of his children. God himself is honored. And if you go to 9.11 through 13, Paul there says, speaking of the Jerusalem Christians, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Those Jerusalem Christians, they're thanking God. Verse 11, the ministry of this service is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. And 13, they, the the, uh, Jerusalem Christians, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. They will glorify God because of what you've done for them. Grace-giving provides, it produces glory to God. And it provides thanksgiving to God where people stop and say, Lord, thank you. If you've ever had a, a dire need and someone steps in and provides for that need, don't you just feel entirely thankful? And that's what Paul says is going on here. And they turn around, they say, thank you to the givers. And they say, Lord, thank you for this. It glorifies God. By the way, one last minor note here. This is an interesting phrase. They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. I think Paul's inferring here, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem might look sideways at you. They're not sure about you. But when they see the reality of Christ's grace giving in you, they'll know you've got the same Messiah they have. You're you're living up to your confession of their Messiah. They know, okay, they've got the same Jesus we have. They lived up. They demonstrated through their grace giving the reality that we share the same Lord. Interesting. So, Why practice grace giving? Because God is glorified when his children meet each other's needs and turn to give him thanks. It's a good thing. Six points, we could probably develop some more. Related application, I'm going to leave this fairly loose this morning, uh, not because I don't believe in giving application, but my bottom line related to this text and answering the question, why should we practice grace giving is this. I think the bottom line for me is this, and it applies across the board. So if you think of applications, it could be almost anything under the sun. 
If I apprehend what God my Father has done for me, what Jesus my Savior has done for me, how can I not practice grace-giving in any and every area of my life? Whether it's my finances, which is the point here, or if it's my time, or it's my energy, it's my words of encouragement to someone else, how can I not practice grace-giving when I understand what God in Christ has done for me? That's the bottom line. If I lay hold of that, it so humbles me, and it so fills me with thanksgiving and gratitude that I want to turn around and bless others because I've been blessed. Guys, if we could apprehend the wealth that we have in our future, we'd have no problem now being far more ready to bless others with anything we have. Everything we give away, in a sense, it's all, it's returned multiple times over for us in eternity. But for me, that's the bottom line. If I apprehend what God in Christ has done for me, how can I not practice grace-giving, imitating my Father and my Savior? Now, we'll mention a few things. We as a church corporately, we have tried to be very intentional about giving. And we give away, it's usually between 30 and 40% every year. We've talked about 25 or 30%. The truth is, when you look at our missionary giving, our benevolent giving, our, just funds that come into the church that go out, it's 30 to 40%. We've tried to be very intentional about being open-handed and generous in our giving to others, to meet needs and to do a host of things. So in saying any of this this morning, I think as a church, I think this is what we try and practice. I think there's always room for improvement, though. And I'm also confident that God will bring about other things in our future which we will realize that's another area God wants us to practice, gracious giving. You know, some of the things we do very briefly, we support an orphanage in Haiti. We support Christians hurting, needing Christians around the world through Voice of the Martyr. We support, they were on the board this morning, the rescue mission in North Topeka, uh, faith with its sleeves rolled up, I believe is the motto, because we understand those are things, those are grace gift areas. We're meeting the needs of others. You know, something you might pray about, a couple needs in the church that I'm aware of right now. One, related to Haiti, the orphanage is trying to elicit funds, monthly support for orphans at that orphanage, where they hear the gospel, where they have their needs met, a roof over their head, a bed to sleep on, and guys, not three meals a day, just two meals a day. Two uh, rice and beans, mostly, kind of meals. That's a need. Talk to Dan McRoy about that if, if that's something God lays on your heart. Uh, also, there's families within our church right now who are adopting children. Uh, God's concerned about widows and orphans, for sure. This is God's kind of work. Those are things that we should be fully supportive of. The Lentz and the Wood family, I think, both right now are in that process. I'm probably forgetting somebody. The Brants also. So we've got families in our midst. They're trying to practice that kind of grace giving their financial needs there too. I wanted to mention too, uh, for kids, young adults, you guys are not too young for this. You have time, you have energy, you have words, right? You guys need to pray too about, Lord, who and what are you putting in my life that I need to be aware of? What needs are you making me aware of that I need to be part of the solution to? What kind of grace gifts Jack and Aaron and Andrew and Trevor is God calling you guys to be thinking about and coming to terms with? Because he is all along the way. 
Let me close with another poem. I got one in. I figured I might as well get two. This is another old. I know these are a little, uh, for our taste today, these are a little dated emotionally, but they carry the point. This is by another woman, Eugenia, excuse me, Arabella Eugenia Smith. It's called, If I Should Die Tonight. If I should die tonight, my friends would look upon my quiet face before they laid it in its resting place and deem that death had left it almost fair and laying snow-white flowers against my hair would smooth it down with tearful tenderness and fold my hands with lingering caress, poor hands so empty and so cold tonight. If I should die tonight... My friends would call to mind with loving thought some kindly deed the icy hand had wrought, some gentle word the frozen lips had said, errands on which the willing feet had sped. The memory of my selfishness and pride, my hasty words would all be put aside, and so I should be loved and mourned tonight. If I should die tonight, even hearts estranged would turn once more to me, recalling other days remorsefully. The eyes that chill me with averted glance would look upon me as of yore, perchance would soften in the old familiar way. For who could war with dumb, unconscious clay? So I might rest forgiven of all tonight. O friends, I pray tonight, keep not your kisses for my dead cold brow. The way is lonely, let me feel them now. Think gently of me, I am travel-worn. My faltering feet are pierced with many a thorn. Forgive, O hearts estranged, forgive, I plead. When dreamless rest is mine, I shall not need the tenderness for which I long tonight. Guys, we have such a short time on the earth. You know what? It's going to be a blink of the eye. I don't know if you guys heard, when we were on vacation, there were three hikers. They're apparently Christians, at least part of a a church camp. They were in Yosemite Park. Did you guys hear about this? Absolutely tragic. They hike to the top of a waterfall over 300 feet tall. They climb over restricted barriers. They ignore the calls of their friends and others that see what they're doing. The girl goes in first. She's walking in the river at the top of the waterfall. She slips and heads over. The second guy tries to rescue her. He slips and goes under. The third goes in to rescue them both, slips and goes under. Now, I'm thinking, the first, the second, or the third. Can you imagine? Life's full. It's all ahead of you. This is a nice day. It's a gorgeous place. And as soon as you slipped under the water, you know what you knew? Your life was over. Because you're moments away from hitting rocks a hundred yards below. You're dead. And you know it. And you have mere seconds to think about that. We have just breaths. Reading in Psalm 39 this morning. Our life, it's a hand breath. It's just a, it's like a shadow. It's just short. You don't know that you've got this afternoon or this evening. I don't either. Paul says to the Corinthians, these poets say to us today, finish what you started. 
think about the kind of grace giving God has practiced to you and practice that yourself. Don't just talk about it. Don't just pray about it. Do it. And don't put it off. Do it today while you have breath to do it. Father, thanks. Lord, we will never in eternity finish or completely say thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. The grace gift beyond all gifts you gave for our redemption to cover our sins, to make us your sons and daughters, to bring us to heaven, to live with you forever. Lord, to enjoy you forever at your side in your house. God in heaven, let the reality of what you've done for us pierce us. Let it change us. We who call ourselves Christ followers, Christians, God give evidence of that, manifest that through our grace gifts in Christ's name to your saints and to those in this world who don't yet know you. In Jesus' name, amen.